0: Every journey begins with a single step. For many, the first step is the greatest challenge. Yet for all, the obstacles, the doubt, and conviction teach us about ourselves. It's these moments in life, a test of our abilities, our mind, when we don't know, but we still proceed. Driven by the unspoken, but ignited by the obsession that yields some of life's greatest lessons and rewards. Join me as we explore incredible stories of leaders forging industries, enterprises, and ultimately, themselves. I'm your host, Adam Geary, and welcome to Capital Class. Let's begin. Classmates, welcome to today's show. Today we visit the intersection of entrepreneurship, education, and philanthropy. A leader who's focused on transforming the lives of students, whom at one point in his life was in need of the very services he now offers. Urban student education is an area long championed for focus, but rarely from a leader that was inside the system. In today's episode of Capital Class, we are joined by Kareem, Naga, CEO of Practice, a mission driven education company partnering with Title I schools to close the achievement gap. Kareem, welcome to Capital Class.
1: Thank you, Adam. Excited to be here.
0: You know, Kareem, your story is both unique and very common. Common in that a founder solving a problem, right? A A lot of businesses start this way. Yet yours feels different that you grew up in inner city New York right? Child of a single parent on government support services, conceptually designed to elevate people. And your story follows a very, very different path than I think what you'd say would be the stereotype, right? You Mm -hmm. end up a scholarship at Cornell, Forbes 30 under, Magic Johnson 30 under 32, a Ted fellow. I know a little bit about Ted, an author of two books. And you could have taken this story and to a different road, right? Out of the very place you started. And yet you decide to build a business tailored to the experiences of your own life. Can you take me back to that corner of dome I'm like, why go back to this sector of education industry, which admittedly is like both incredible need, incredible value, but incredibly hard.
1: Yeah, Adam, I think I've always had a predisposition to do hard things, but (laughs) I think it really started with uh, growing up. I'm, I'm one of seven and I'm the second oldest, but there's a bit of a gap between the third and the fourth. And so at least for the early childhood, when you're forming your identity, one of the things that my father, when he was alive, always made a point. Uh, to do was to make sure that we were treated equally. The mm-hmm. The oldest brother obviously had the oldest brother role, but beyond that, it was about treating us all equally. And so I took this bent towards like justice and making sure folks had what they needed to be successful. And as I got older and went through our public education system, um, I didn't think much of it, right? I never thought, oh, I'm going to one day commit my life to improving the education system because as a kid, I didn't see anything wrong with it. I had nothing else to compare it to. And for what it was worth, my parents would always tell me stories about what school was like in Egypt. And this was nothing like that experience. So it was so much better than that. And when I got to college and I started learning about the inequality in our education system, which again only happened because I was trying to get scholarship money for Cornell, I started to realize that the numbers weren't just numbers for me. They were the kids I was growing up with and they were me. Right. When you're reading statistics like eleven percent of first generation college students graduate and low income college students graduate over six years on average. I wasn't looking at those numbers my freshman year of college and saying, Oh, that's sad, that sucks. I was looking at them and saying, Oh shit, that's me that they're talking about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that that I thought college is only four years. Why are they giving the six year statistic? <laughs> Do I only have a one in ten chance of really finishing now that I've gotten here? You know, after putting all that time, energy and effort to getting here. And then after the justice aspect and questioning and insecurity, I moved to the frame of, well, no, this can't be, this can't be right. Um, are people really saying that I don't have this chance, that kids growing up like me aren't going to make it? that all of this time, energy, and money spent to get to this point isn't going to pay off. I'm not going to ultimately achieve the American dream and get my college education. And so the questions started to become more frustration. And then I did what I think a lot of people do when they're doubted or told something, right? When you tell someone they're overweight and they can't lose weight, or you tell someone who's scrawny they can't build muscle – I felt like I was being told by society that because I grew up in a certain place and grew up in a certain household, that I wasn't deserving, that I wasn't smart enough, and that that narrative wasn't just playing out in my life, but it was playing out for everyone I grew up with and for the kids who were growing up in similar circumstances after that. And that really just, it drove me to one, make a a commitment to myself that I wasn't going to be another statistic. And then to make sure that I was going to do everything I could in my power to make sure that the decades of inequality and the decades of this narrative would start to change after I got out. So it was almost a coincidence, but um, I don't believe in coincidence anymore. If you're doing this work for over a decade, you, you recognize that uh, it takes a lot of faith. And I, I genuinely believe that God put me on this earth to do this work. And so it is more out of a sense of moral obligation than it is a choice at this point in my life.
0: I mean Kareem, that's an enormous task set out at a very formative age. I mean just for lack of a better word like the guts. I mean in the in the early days, I mean tell us, I mean what was that like?
1: Yeah, I mean you you when you're starting out you're not thinking like, oh my god, I'm going to try and do this all by myself and I had like started to learn about the problems and Recognized that the bigger the problem, the more support I could get. And so it was never about me trying to fix our education system on my own, but instead, how could I inspire more people to care? One of the early things that I sort of heard and that resonated with me in the early days of doing this work is that when you run into these stats for so long, you start to think that this is the narrative, this is intentional, and Adam, I'm sure you've heard this before, this is systemic oppression. Right. The system was meant to keep poor people down. The system was meant to keep people of color down. And I found myself in a auditorium of principals back in maybe it was 2014 or 2015, a year or two after I graduated from college. And I was harboring this narrative. And when you dig too far into it, you start to lose hope. Right. Because what's the point of even trying if that is the case? And there was a a veteran educator who was just past retirement who was getting up in front of this auditorium of probably over 200 school leaders, and he says, guys, guess what? That term ESL that we talk about, English as a second language, um, we're changing it, and we're replacing English as a second language with this new term called ENL, English as a new language. And uh, it's because we've realized that after all these years that for children coming into our country, that English is actually their third or their fourth language. And the way we approach that education is very different. And man, these educators jump to their feet. They're like celebrating as if they accomplished something magnificent. And maybe I was still young, naive and super idealistic, but I sat there and my jaw dropped. And I was like, are you guys effing kidding me? It took you guys 50 years to realize that children coming to this country, that English could possibly be their third or their fourth language. And it dawned on me in that moment that so many of the folks who were leading our education system weren't dealing with those problems firsthand themselves. And so they weren't thinking to fix them. Right. We talk about representation across the board. It's not because people wake up and they, they want someone who looks like them in office. No, it's because they want someone who looks like them because they, they're they going to probably share similar problems. Mm. And uh, we as humans wake up and the first thing we typically deal with are all the problems in our lives. And we all have problems, whether they're relationship, health, financial, educational, there's some sort of problem. and So the last thing we're thinking about are the problems of other people. Right? How am I going to end world hunger today? How am I going to solve poverty today? How am I going to improve the education system today? Those aren't the first thoughts. The first thoughts are, how do I solve the problems in my life? And so what I recognized in that moment is that it wasn't oppression oppression actually takes effort, right? That's now someone waking up and saying, you know what, after I've solved my problems, I want to go and create problems for someone else. And I'm not saying that there aren't some people out there, but they're few and far between.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: More often than not, it's people are waking up and they're saying, hey, I I don't even know. I'm not aware. I don't care. I have too many things in front of me already that I need to address. And so I recognize that so much of what I needed to do wasn't turning the opposition or trying to rewrite the structural oppression narrative, but instead getting people who are apathetic to the problem to care. Because once they understood that it was there, once they saw that it was a problem, then they would invest, then they would join the movement, then they would start to change the way that they acted and operated. And we would get more of these incremental changes that could have such a big impact for children growing up like me. So it wasn't let me go in, put the whole system on my back it was instead how do i mobilize more people to get them focused and caring about a population that really does matter and can and can change you know what what we think about for society
0: it feels there's a power in what you're talking about it kind of transcends what, what today's episode is which we lack right now right there's a lot of finger pointing there's not a lot of people hand putting a hand out and saying like hey come take a walk with me right so i was a classically trained educator trained on ESOL, right? It was a course. In fact, you could get specific training to be an ESOL certified teacher. And there was, I think there was ESOL two and three, and it's been a minute, but I had students in my classroom way back, it was 08. And you know, you're, you're jogging my memory of these were kids who came to America and they spoke no English. And at the time, what do you do, right? So I had 28 kids a day, or a, a period, and they all had different learning needs, very common, but I also had someone that had a learning need who did not speak English. At a time when the common thought was we would put, we would group children. Grouping was a big thing at this time. So I'm grouping children, but then this term modifications right? So modifications were encouraged for students so that you could kind of level the playing field. Modifications for someone who doesn't speak English is essentially helping them take the test, right? Or watering it down to the point where they could just guess enough, you know? And, and it never dawned on me until you just said this today that like the term ESOL is presumptive in the sense of like, that girl might've spoke five languages she just didn't speak English. And I taught in English and it was an English classroom. And like the system has to address the kind of broadest stroke that it can, which I understand. But what you're bringing up a point that is really well taken though. Like there's people who just, there are probably people who, who actively work against the situation. But I think what you're really identifying is there's people who just, they don't get it. I'm even learning on the show and I have been in the room for, uh, Fourteen years, right? And it's like there's there's a lot of power there, Cream. How important was your success in your business directly related to your experiences in your life? Like, because you uh, arguably, like you're ex- you're explaining to everybody that you had fought a statistic and been successful, right? Like you were not a statistic at this point, and yet you. You then turn back to the community, you know, kind of talk, talk us through that journey, right? You, you, you start with one or two, and then how did you build this business to what it is today?
1: Yeah, Adam, I would definitely say that uh, one of the things I realized later in my life is that you're a statistic either way, right? I was just too naive to recognize that I just wasn't going to be a negative statistic, Um, But uh, it was two-pronged for me in my journey. One was I wanted to set the bar as high as I possibly could, um, not just for myself, but for kids growing up like me and giving them something to aspire to and someone that they could relate to and see that you're more than your circumstances, that the cards that you're dealt are just the cards that you're dealt, right? But it's how you play them that ultimately dictates your life. And then the other side of it was I wanted people who instinctively just had a negative connotation or stereotype with kids growing up in the hood or the inner city or who are immigrants, that they were scary, that they were intimidating, that they weren't smart or that they weren't investing and in that. When they looked at me, you know, hopefully they started to see that there were so many assets in my community that the people I was growing up with and the kids that I was growing up with had more that they could offer. And so I, I wanted my life to also be a testimony and a testament to what was possible if we invested and we actually cared, right? If we looked at the assets instead of just the liabilities there. But I would say a 100% of my upbringing is tied to like the success of our organization. Um, and not because I learned some like magical business skills, but because I cared enough to never stop right? I think for anyone who's listening to this or who's built a business or an organization, you know, it's taxing, it's trying. There are so many moments where things look like they're not going to work out. I mean, the statistics around success in the business space are set up almost against you, right? It's almost like don't even start because odds are you're going to fail. But I think when you're doing it from a sense of obligation and purpose and they're like, I guess the stakes of failure are so high, right? Because I know what happens to kids when they don't get the help. I know what happens to children when they're not getting the resources that our organization provides. And when that's at stake, the the fight to continue to survive, the fight to continue to grow, the fight to continue to push forward isn't just like a practice match, right? Every single day I'm out there, every single day I wake up, I feel like I'm stepping into the ring, right? It's, it's showtime, it's a game, and we need to do everything we can to make sure that we're winning because when we win, more scholars are winning, more schools are winning, more administrators are winning. And that—that that, I guess when you, when you have that level of pressure on you and you have the, the privilege that comes with that, right, the ability to, to have that, that sense of responsibility, you have no option but to continue to move forward. And so the success that we've seen on the business side is a result of the fact that I'm connected to the community. I'm connected to my purpose and there isn't anything that's really going to stop us. We're going to continue to find a way to move forward because everything is figure outable, right? And, that, and that's the way we've, we've continued to approach it.
0: Besides the obvious, right? Which the ones you mentioned earlier and the, probably the ones that the listeners could guess, like what's the most common misconception that you run into about urban education? And I'll, I'll caveat this with, I grew up in New York. So not city, Long Island. I knew people that got, went to school in the New York city, urban schools, and they had a sharpness about them. They, they were like super wise. Like It didn't occur to me, like, like you had mentioned until I was much older that there were differences and how those differences played in. I mean, you know, speak to, speak to us a little bit about that. Like, what is it that we don't know about the urban education environment?
1: Man, I mean, one of my favorite things about uh, kids growing up in the inner city is the the confidence, right? And yeah. sometimes it's uh, – it's uh, the, the foundation isn't there for it, but I, I love it. <laughs> you know, like when you see that and when I went to college and I saw more of it, you know, you get this like timid shyness with folks who grow up with a lot of resources. I'm not – and that's a generalization and it's not fair, but more often than not, confidence is what we're working on trying to build – um, in the inner city, like in school, the confidence is there. The foundation is just lacking, right? On the other side, the foundation is there, but the confidence isn't always there. But I, <laughs> I'll, I'll take a step back and kind of say the the bigger issue is just the frame at which we approach urban education. And I saw this a lot during COVID, right? As we got to the end of it, the focus for all of the adults was always on the deficit side of things, right? What was missing? What wasn't learned, what kids didn't achieve, how far behind they are, instead of focusing on what the assets were there, right? What did kids learn during that time period? What did our school system learn during that time period? Folks are more technologically savvy. Folks were forced to do class online, whether or not it was seamless or perfect or whatever it was, there is strength in that. We are building what will be one of the most resilient generations of our time because of COVID. Um, That's not something that you learn easily, right? That adversity that we've overcome. And so I just think we tend to look at urban education with this deficit mindset, deficit lens, and we're products of our expectations, right? Not products of our environments. And so when we go in there expecting nothing, that's typically what we get. If we went in there with a different frame... And started to think about the potential and saw the assets that were there. We would get something very different from our urban education system, right? If we looked at it as um, an opportunity for investment instead of a cost center that was just sucking resources, we would think differently about what we paid our teachers. We would think differently about how we structured our classrooms. We would think differently about all of those other elements. And I will say like there, there is this stereotypical like run down schools, uh, messed up faucets, like, old school classrooms, but then there are others with amazing school buildings and facilities. And it really isn't changing the outcome because the, the physical space does matter, but it's not the only thing, but it's inside those four walls. Like the, the classroom teacher matters just as much in the inner city as they do in any other location. And, I think if we could improve the quality of teachers across the board and make sure that there were teachers in every single classroom, that would change the game as well. So let's approach the urban school system from an asset based lens and let's make sure that every single classroom has a teacher, you know, and that's something so basic. But I, I can tell you just from my own experience that there are low-income schools that start their school year every single year without a full-time teacher that's going to be there for the entire school year. And when you're starting the school year that way, it's it's always going to be an uphill battle.
0: I just love that mindset. And I just think that there's not enough people talking about the wins. Uh, and, and I don't want to make light of COVID, like terrible, life-altering, so many people were hurt. But there were there were lessons learned and you, you say it powerfully, right? Like there's, there was a time when no one could really even fathom online education at scale. There was a time when one-to-one was like a dream, you know, you certain districts had it. No one was one-to-one, right? There was a time where uh, it just wasn't, it was taken as this kind of side component to education. And you're right. I mean, these kids made it now they may have their own challenges but it does bring a certain amount of mental dexterity to be able to go from an in-person classroom and then online and still persist. And I Absolutely. think there's a lot of power man tell that we got to be telling that story and I I appreciate you for sharing it. You We just you don't, don't
1: measure it Adam, right? Like yeah. we don't measure we don't measure resilience in schools. We don't promote based on those things. You know, the, the softer things that we know help people be successful in the real world, we don't have good measures for the things we do know how to measure are math scores and reading scores. And so if that's the only barometer for our success or measurement that year, then, yeah, by those standards, we failed during COVID. But if we looked at some of the other things, right, and we measured resilience, we measured optimism, we measured hope, we measured technological like savviness, we measured flexibility and adaptability. Uh, All of those things would have been off the charts during that time period. And we would have looked at the time period very differently and said, oh, you know what? That actually was successful.
0: You integrate entrepreneurship and this other concept, which I I found fascinating is conscious capitalism. And I, I, these terms are not unique, right? We hear them often. We just don't hear them often for curricula. Talk to me about some of like why these skills, you know, What's the value for your students? Kind of just take us through some of the methodology of of practice.
1: Yeah, I mean, at the very top, like we start with our education champions and they're of and from the communities that we work with. We put a lot of emphasis on recruiting locally. And that's because we want our scholars to be able to look up to the kids that they're, you know, being served and supported by. You know, when someone says, hey, I believe in you and you can do it and they look like you, it makes it feel a lot more real than when the person has nothing in common with you at all, right? And there isn't this ability to relate. Um, And then we equip them with our culturally responsive curricula. And I hate the way that we've weaponized culturally responsive because the way we talk about culture is what's trending, what's mainstream, right? What is happening today in the news? When it was the election cycle, we were talking about the election. When it was COVID, we were talking about COVID. Um, because that is what's trending. That's what's top of mind, right? If it happens to be the NBA finals, it's the NBA finals. And so, so much of what we're trying to do is connect what we're teaching to what kids are seeing all around them. So that's what we mean when we say culturally responsive. And then from there, we're really making sure that we recruit people who believe in our values, right? When we say act entrepreneurially, right? We are looking for people who are going to continue to think outside the box, who are going to be able to do more with little, right? Just the by definition of being an entrepreneur. When we say be a conscious capitalist, we're saying, hey, we understand that money is like finite. There is a finite amount of resources when we're talking about education. Um, but we also need to treat our expenses like investments, right? And so it doesn't mean don't spend any money. It means that. We need to be thinking about what the outcome is of these resources. It means, hey, we're using money because money is a measure of success, but we're using it for a means, right? And our means is to be able to continue to invest, continue to innovate, continue to serve more children, serve more schools. So we're really looking for people who are thinking about our values, and that comes all the way through. And then as we're innovating and thinking about new products, thinking about new things that we can offer our school partners, it comes back to our values and really being able to realize our purpose at the end of the day, right? Which is ensuring that no child circumstance is going to limit their potential, right? We want to make sure that every child's potential is reached and we want them to be able to do that. And the how, right? Like we know that's flexible and that'll always continue to change. And that as an organization, we've continued to evolve over the years.
0: It's incredible the way you've seamlessly kind of integrated those concepts, all of them relevant, right? I mean, this is when we're hiring, we're we're looking for an entrepreneurial mindset, right? To use your point about conscious capital, we want someone to think of the organizational funds or clients' funds as if they were their own and kind of how how would you deploy those and deliver those in a way that was valuable and meaningful? So, you know, imagine that at a student, I didn't receive that kind of that type of education, right? I mean, it, it's- yeah. And so Adam, when available. people
1: come to us and they they ask us like, what is different? You know, I and I say this internally all the time, what we do isn't different. It's how we do it, right? It's the way that we behave. It's the values that we subscribe to as an organization. It's our purpose for being, right? And, and that is what really changes the way that we operate or deliver at the end of the day, right? When you love students, when you care about the kids that you're working with, when you're showing up out of a sense of obligation instead of because it's a job, those things have an impact. You know, kids don't care what you have to teach them until they know that you care about them first, right? And, and what better way to demonstrate that than to be invested all the way from the top, right? From, from me to our frontline education champion are doing the work day in and day out in a lot of our classrooms.
0: You know, we talk a lot about the journey, right? The entrepreneurial journey, idea to enterprise. And I'm on the record that there's a ton that people don't see, right? The doubt, the loneliness, the success, and then the satisfaction of that success, but also the challenge of success, replicating success, managing success. Our businesses, mine and yours are 13 years old. You're still leading and growing your business how do you make that decision to persist, right? Especially in an education market where the playbook is build it and sell it. Yeah, I guess I I
1: never walked into the entrepreneurship space because I wanted to build a business, right? I, I walked into it because I wanted to solve a problem and this was just the vehicle to do it. And, you know, our organization has gone through iterations. When we started out, we started as a 501c3, right? And even before that, we were a student club, right? I was on campus running a club. And then we became a 501c3 nonprofit because I wanted to serve low-income kids and families. And I was like, the only way to do this is to raise money from rich people and use that money to fund the programming. And then I realized, well, actually, schools have money if we can figure out how how to drive their proficiency scores in math and reading. And then I said, okay, well, what's the model for that? And then we became a public benefit corporation. And so for me, the business is just a vehicle to be able to execute on my life's purpose and the purpose of our of our work at the end of the day. And so I I don't know, I, I didn't jump in with an end date. Um, we definitely had our like near death moments time and time again. And I think one of the things that has been true for me, especially in the deepest, like darkest moments where I have seen like all hope kind of vanish is that Uh, I need to be in this seat doing it for as long as I'm the best person to be doing it. And when that moment comes that I'm no longer qualified to be doing it, then I need to step aside. But you better believe I'm looking at that and not saying like, oh, I guess I'm going to throw my hands down. And instead, hey, how do I learn? How do I continue to accelerate my learning? How do I continue to develop into the leader that this organization needs, right? So I'm, I'm continuing to grow. I'm continuing to evolve. Um, and if the organization's growth and everything else outpaces me, I will step aside. I'm going to find a different way to contribute because this is the work that I'm supposed to be doing, but it may not be in the CEO seat. And, you know, along the way, the thing that I think has been incredibly valuable for me has just been finding communities that have been surrounded and built with other folks who are committed, you know, to improving society, to commit to improving the environment, whether that's the Echoing Green Fellows, the TED Fellows, the Global Good Fund Fellows, and I've just been so privileged and immensely lucky to be a part of communities where people are selflessly dedicating their lives to something much bigger than themselves. And it it just, it aligns with my own philosophical view about like why we're here at the end of the day. Um, It is in service. And the, the more you serve, the more you get out of it. And I think when you see that, right, I'm supposed to be doing this, there's no other way, I have to figure it out, then it continues to drive you and move you forward. And hopefully you attract other people who care about the same things, who are gonna continue to push you, are gonna continue to uplift you. So yes, the moments of loneliness have been there, but more more often than not, they've been in my head than they have been in reality. Cause I have my family, I have my friends, I have my spouse, like my wife, and my incredible like team of people who make this happen every single day. Cause this is far from a one man show. And it, it has continued to drive me and push me to persist in ways that I, I never thought possible, right? And so I'm sure you're seeing the same thing. And we, we talk a lo- about the loneliness a lot, but how much of it is in our head versus an in, in actual reality?
0: There's no problem that doesn't, in the long run, just dissipate, right? Like there's existential ones, but especially when you're running a business, it's very easy to be caught up in the now unless you think, will this be a problem for me in a year or two years or five years? If the answer is no, then it's really not an existential threat to the business. It's just a problem to be solved now. And there's a refreshing take that you shared, which is I feel like I have to keep learning, right? As you had mentioned. And if at some point I'm not the best person for the job, that's okay. But I want to keep sharpening that tool set so that I can be. And there's a lot of founders that I think don't know when to leave. And I, when the recipient of this, when we bring them on as clients and their staff will say, like, I don't know why we do it this way. Or I'm not sure, it's like the business they built was maybe five or 10 people. And they were the perfect person for that. But is it the same skill set to run a business of a thousand people? It's not. And your words, I think, need to be shared more often, which is like, these are not, you don't have to die in these chairs. That doesn't mean to be fired. It's just that your utility for the enterprise, if in fact is on a mission, needs to be, can you advance the mission? And if you can, great. And then when you can't, find a different seat in the bus. You don't have to get off.
1: And Adam, there's two things there, right? Are you surrounding yourself with people that you really trust who will tell you the truth? Because when they when you surround yourself with people you trust, he'll tell you the truth. You'll listen, right? We don't listen to everyone, but we listen to the people that we trust. Um, And then the second one is, what do you care more about, right? Is it your ego, your status, and your title, or is it the mission of the work that you're doing? And when you're put in that position and you have to pick, um, are you going to be selfless enough to say that the mission is more important? And, And truthfully, I don't know that we're able to make that conscious choice until we at the moment or the crux of you're potentially going to lose everything you know and i i had that scare in late 2017 where i nearly bankrupted the business and it was the first time i had come to like terms with saying like clearly i wasn't qualified to to build this in the way that i had there's a lot that i need to learn uh thankfully i had enough people around me that i could ask for help and mentor and support me but it was in that moment that i realized that the reason why i was doing this work the purpose behind this work was more important than anything that i was doing or contributing to it and so when when i had that realization was when i was able to make the intentional decision to say if it ever came between me and the mission again it was going to be a mission and until you make that decision as well you can't surround yourself with other people who are thinking in the same way right and so i, I will say like one of the 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 realities of making that is Everyone I hire, everyone that works with us knows that it's mission first, right? And sometimes it means I have to make decisions that suck for me or they suck for someone else, but they're in the best interest of the team and in the best interest of the organization. And when you're able to put the mission of the organization first, a lot of those difficult decisions that we struggle and we grapple with become so much easier because you have people there for the right reasons and they understand too, right? When they outgrow their seat or when the seat outgrows them, they're ready to also transition.
0: There's a power in this. I mean, incredible and no surprise. You've continued to see the growth of your business and it takes a lot of humility to share failures, right? Like we, we have a vernacular at strategist called laboratory culture, right? And in short, you know, the scientist that goes in the laboratory, tries a hundred experiments, fails 99 of them and is successful on the hundredth is a genius the professional who goes into the corporate world or business world tries a hundred things, fails 99 times is successful. Once is treated as a failure, but they're at essence, the same thing. And I, I think that there's a power in, in, in knowing when you need help, but also empowering your people to try things and yourself to try things, freeing yourself from the fear of, like, this just might not work, and it sounds like you yourself have gone through a, a real actual threat, and you survived it, and there's, there's, a, there's a power in that. Like, when you get to the next hard time, you'll reflect on the last hard time, and you persisted.
1: Adam, so much of it, though, is perspective, too, right? And I run a a newsletter that I put together just like free learning with a question every single week. And one of them was like, where do I need to apply beginner's mindset recently? And when we take a beginner's mindset, we allow ourselves to fail. We allow ourselves to experiment. And maybe that is the difference in the lab, right? The expectation is that we're supposed to experiment, that we're supposed to do this, versus in the corporate world where you can't fail that many times and still be labeled a success, right? When we were talking about COVID and we were saying, you know, kids weren't doing well on math and reading. Well, they weren't really learning math and reading, but they were a failure instead of saying, well, look at all of the other successes that came out of it. And so it's the perspective behind what it is we're looking for at the end of the day as well. So you, you've normalized that in your space. How do you normalize that in more places?
0: It's part of the mission. What is it that people don't see about you? How do you recharge? Like how how do you stay this driven?
1: I mean, I focus on my why. It's so like cliche. it, it is. It's like knowing every single day why I'm waking up, why I'm doing the work that I do. And I, I get connected to that through the scholars. Now I've been doing this for 13 years, and so you were a teacher before, you know this. You see the kids grow up, right? You start to see the success stories. Like I have kids from our early classes now that are at Cornell, right? That never would have imagined going wow. to corn, to an Ivy League school. I had one like mentor in our very first class who's now working at BlackRock, the same company that I turned down my full-time offer from because I wanted to create those opportunities for other kids growing up like me. You know, I have scholars who have become mentors, mentors who become teachers, teachers who are coaches, coaches who become principals. And one of the other things that's always excited me is human potential, right? And I push myself so much because I want to see what I'm capable of. But I also love seeing other people achieve their potential, push beyond their bounds. Um, And then everything I do is always in service of how do I get better so I can better support this work? How do I get faster so I can better support our mission, so I can better support our scholars, so I can better support our school leaders. Um, Folks sometimes think that my crazy discipline, my focus, my routines, the recharging, all of those things, I'm doing just so I can get faster. And the, the reality couldn't be further from the truth. I've always done it with the lens and the framework of I need to get better so I can get better for our organization. And when you have a why that that's, that's that big. Right. And when you have the faith in what you're doing, that's that big, it's bigger than your fear. Like that is what is continuing to motivate and drive me day in and day out.
0: And so going a step further, right. All of those things require energy. How do you unplug? Like, what, what do you do to kind of stay this fresh?
1: I get my eight hours of sleep. So that's a uh, first thing. So <laughs> make sure you sleep.
0: Are you a competitive um, sleeper? Are you on a I don't I'm, compete with serious? anyone.
1: Um, but when I'm in bed, I'm in bed, so <laughs> I'm out. My wife will tell you in, in Tampa, you know that the train passes right through the city. I yes. don't hear it when I'm out. So uh, there's that. I spend time with my family. I spend time with my wife. Uh, church, so we go to church. We're part of a church community. Um, I'm more extroverted than I'm introverted. And so I surround myself with people and I get energy from people. Um, I try to make sure that the weekends I'm not working. Um, I'm trying to be as offline as possible when it comes to that. And then, you know, we set boundaries even internally as an organization, right? We have our work hours, we have our flex hours, we have our communication hours, and we do our best to manage those things. But I don't know. I I feel like the the burnout comes when you're miserable and hate what you're doing, right? When you're waking up excited to do something, or when you're energized about what impact you can have. It's. I don't know. I'm not sitting there like counting the hours and not counting the minutes. Um, I'm enjoying what I'm doing, and I think again like that perspective, right? Are, Are you approaching it from a lens of Oh my God, I have to do this. Or, Oh my God, this is such a big thing. Or, Oh my God, this problem isn't moving. Um, yeah, it's going to be miserable. It's going to be hard. Every single minute is going to weigh on you versus, Hey, I'm just like, I'm in, I'm consumed by what I'm doing. It's not, I don't know. And then the point I didn't say earlier is in that moment when I nearly bankrupted the business, I also had another realization that I would be willing to work for nothing right? And I would do this even if I wasn't getting paid to do it. And I know that that isn't a luxury that everyone has the ability to do that. And at the time, I didn't have the financial luxury to do that and I would have done it anyway. So call it crazy. Uh, today, I have the luxury to be able to do that, but I would do it anyway, right? And so if, if you found that thing that you would do for free, right, they say it doesn't feel like work. And there are so many moments in doing what I'm doing where I feel like I'm, I'm not really working, right? Like I'm living, this is what I'm supposed to be doing and I'm doing it. And I'm, not doing it in service of me, I'm doing it in service of others and that continues to drive me.
0: I love the mindset. The mindset is moving the enterprise and and there's there's no doubt we'll continue to see you succeed. Kareem, we get everyone out on uh, fast four. Okay, four questions, top of mind, kind of quick response. As an entrepreneur, what trends are emerging that interest you?
1: AI. I'm just like so fascinated by it. Things we were doing in 30 minutes now, like you can do in 30 seconds. So it's it's disrupted every industry. Like it just have to embrace it. And so it's just something I'm fascinated by right now.
0: One place in the world everyone needs to visit.
1: That's a tough one. Um, If you love like history and culture, I would say Egypt, uh, (laughs) food scene in Mexico City to see how like the bottom of the pyramid could live and also what congestion looks like. There's parts of India, like Bombay. Um, I don't have one. I just,
0: there's a lot. I love it. Greatest area of growth for you in the coming year.
1: Greatest area of growth. Um, I'm going to be a new father. So we're expecting. Wow. um, 10, 10 is the due date, which really means anytime now and
0: yeah i have no in idea what it's zone, like man. to be a
1: parent so yeah <laughs> so i need to figure out how to be a parent and manage a business um at the same time so i would say that definitely that and a priority also like figuring out what it's like to be a dad
0: that'll be another show but uh it's incredible and i'm so happy for you and your family there's nothing that has elevated my personal life my life more than children and a spouse so i'm congratulate you for sure. And then favorite podcasts that everyone needs to be listening to.
1: I'm a fan of Hidden Brain on NPR. So they do a weekly show, they release it on Tuesdays, and it's always like something to push your thinking a little bit. Maybe something you've been thinking about, you need to think about it differently, or something you haven't thought about. And it's driving your behavior and action every single day. And it's nice to know what it is.
0: Kareem, thank you for an incredible show. Thank you for the incredible work you do. We look forward to continuing celebrating your progress. And uh, yeah, congratulations on so so much impact in such a short period of time, if you think about it. Thank you, Adam. I appreciate you having me on here. Thank you for joining today's episode of Capital Class. If you're interested in joining our next discussion, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or any of your favorite podcast platforms. Capital Class is a venture with the Strategist Podcast Network. To view the entire lineup of shows, visit strategistgroup.com. I'm Adam Geary. Class is closed.